0: Hi, I'm Naomi Murphy, and this is the Locked Up Living podcast, where we talk with a wide range of people about harsh aspects of institutional life.
1: We also explore some of the ways to overcome them and to grow and develop. I'm David Jones. So join us every Wednesday morning, six o'clock UK time for a fresh podcast.
0: Hi, so today we're pleased to welcome along Rob Hosking. Rob is a TEDx motivational speaker, a former police officer and a mental health advocate known for his inspiring journey from adversity to happiness. Rob shares his experiences with mental health challenges and trauma, offering practical insights with his Seven Steps to Happiness guide. As the co-founder of Rise of Happiness, Rob promotes well-being through uplifting stories and expert insights. He now lives with PTSD from the traumas he experienced as a police officer and shares the struggles he faces on a daily basis. He's a sought-after speaker dedicated to empowering others to lead happier lives, so we're really pleased to have you on today, Rob. Welcome along.
1: Thank you so much. Thanks so much for having me. Hi, Rob. Very uh, good to uh, meet you. Um, I'm particularly interested in talking with you today because I used to work in a a police counselling service in the Thames Valley. England so I spent many hours talking with policemen but always within that particular confines of being in a therapy room so it's good to meet you outside of of that yeah yeah it'll be
2: interesting to see what you get from it if there's uh, any differing things that you get
1: so what attracted you to a, a career in the in the police is that what you'd always wanted to do
2: it's funny people ask you that question and they they probably do assume that it's like oh it's a dream job and you know your dreams come true but that fairy tale life wasn't really actually true for me because it was never something I wanted to do it was never my passion never my dream and I found myself at university in fourth year I was studying history so studying history to going into police doesn't really go hand in hand I was studying history, and I didn't really know what I wanted to do in my life going forward. didn't want to become a history teacher. I just kind of thought, what, what, what do I want to do? And my family were either police or military. So already in that backdrop, I had that external pressure of, well, that's what success is going to be. That's what happiness is. Because so many people in my family had either followed one of those careers. And I remember my brother texted me saying, oh, the... The police Scotland are recruiting, so I'm going for it. I'm going to apply. I think you should too. And at age 22, I thought, oh, I was, I think it was 21 at the time. I, I was like, why not go for it? What's the worst that can happen? It's only an application form. Six months later, I was in the
1: job. <laughs> so they really wanted you. Yeah. Yes,
2: that's it. Yeah, Eva really wanted me or were desperate for numbers. I'm not sure what, <laughs> which one. <laughs>
1: yes. So, so I imagine what you're saying that the reality wasn't quite what you'd uh, imagined it might be is that right
2: yeah it it wasn't i I, to be honest with you i was probably a wee bit naive that age i didn't really think of what i would be experiencing day in day out you know you'd watch the cop shows the bill when you were younger and you just kind of think you were chasing bad guys and very rarely actually stop to think wait a minute what about the trauma I'm going to witness? What about the dead bodies that I'm going to encounter? What about speaking to families about losing partners, loved ones, whoever it may be? What about all that trauma? What about the stress? What about the sleepless nights, the shift work? Those kind of things didn't really come into my mind. I just thought, you're going to catch bad guys. You're doing good for society. And I know it was it's probably a naive, narrow viewpoint to have, but when you're age 21, 22. That's probably what you think about in the police. You think, I'm going to help people. I'm going to catch bad guys, get them off the street, lock them up. And that's the that's all you think. You don't think about, what about the mental health crisis that exists, that the police force at that time, especially. I know they've they've pared back now, but at that time, you're dealing with mental health crisis after crisis, talking people down from bridges. Did I think I was going to deal with that? 100% no. I I had that narrow-minded view of, you're going to catch bad guys.
1: So in the course of your job did you have any particular traumatic uh, encounters i
2: had i had so many and i saw this stat other week and it said that a police officer will experience between 400 and 600 traumatic events during their career like that is during a 30 year career but you compare that to a normal civilian who will experience between 3 and 4 traumatic events in their lifetime and you can just imagine with that stat, just how many traumatic events that police officers are being exposed to on a daily basis. Now, I can't say that I experienced between 400 and 600. I wasn't in it for 30 years. I was in it for five years. But within those five years, the trauma that I witnessed on a daily basis was significant. But the trauma looked different every day, every shift, you know, so I could be Looking at direct trauma where I've attended a road traffic collision and there's somebody there who's dying in front of me. Directly, that's impacting me. Also, the next day I could be speaking to a wife, a husband, a parent, whoever it may be, and telling them that their loved one has died suddenly. You know, in a different... But I've not dealt with that, but that indirect trauma, because now I'm experiencing the trauma that they are having for me passing that horrific news to them. So the trauma looked very different on a daily basis. The trauma of getting verbally abused by people, you know, age 22, I had, well, very rarely had it. I had encountered anybody shouting anything at me in an aggressive manner. We're not really, you're not really used to that kind of stuff. In, in, in a civilian life, you're not really used to that kind of thing. And I certainly wasn't. I had, a, I say, a sheltered enough upbringing my, I grew up in Northern Ireland and my parents grew up in the trouble. so I think they kind of sheltered me a lot more than maybe other children in different countries because they'd seen so many bad things and so yeah I wasn't I don't know I think I was just so naive about what I would experience and the trauma that you know of just getting abused that was traumatic for me because I was never used to it I was came from a loving family and loving friendships and having that was so traumatic too. And, you know, your heart rate go- is going up each minute of the day when you're on shift because, A, you have no idea what's going to come next. And that is, you have that anxiety. I think that builds that anxiety within you because you're thinking, what's coming, what is about to come? And B, you're also, when you're going to these calls, when you're being told, there's a fight. There's um, two males who've got knives or whatever it may be. There's a weapon. You can imagine what that's doing in your heart rate, that adrenaline when you're going to that call. And I'd be in the uh, the police van. I'd be like, "Oh my god! Oh my goodness! What's what am I going to?" But that all goes in the back of your mind. So consciously you are thinking about it, but consciously you're just thinking, "Professional head, I need to get it done." So the trauma I experienced day in day out, there was there's so much of it and. I can go into the details of certain ones that really affected me, if you would like.
0: But just, just um, to pick up on something you were talking about there, Rob is, I think that often gets underestimated that the impact of those smaller levels of abrasiveness and aggression that people cope with on a daily basis in jobs like the police you you see very similar in in parts of the prison system as well and actually even emergency services you know and people services where they're dealing with people who are perhaps inebriated um, and aggressive at the same time so we staff are often just expected to get on with it aren't they and i know that there are these kind of like zero tolerance policy posters upon the wall but i know when i worked in a psychiatric hospital people used to just laugh at those because the police for instance would not be interested if uh, patients were verbally abusing staff members that was just seen as that is just part of your job and even not just the verbal abuse but kind of like very small low level Um, physical assaults which might not have a a lasting damage on you in terms of your physical body but something about how you cope with being on the receiving end of anger and hatred day in day out Um, you know I don't think that could be underestimated in terms of the personal challenge that it poses.
2: Yeah I completely agree and it's this idea of negativity and the negativity that you're surrounding yourself with on a daily basis of course that impacts you Now, for me, it impacted how I viewed the world because all of a sudden, you know, a starry-eyed guy going into the police at 21, 22, and then all of a sudden seeing all that, I'm like, wait a minute, I'm seeing the reality of what people are capable of. Like, that's not just seeing the horrific crimes, but also what people are capable of with the nastiness of what they can say to you. And people will probably be like, oh, you're in the police, get over it. Oh, what do you expect? But at the end of the day, we're still human beings. Every police officer, every prison officer, whoever it may be, we're all humans, and no human can just take all that stuff without it impacting them on a certain level. It's like when someone's shouting abuse or anything like that, your stress levels internally, it's they're, they're going to go up. They're going to try to meet that, you know, the, the way someone's presenting to you. you don't, you're not just calm. And if you're calm on the outside, I bet you you're not calm on the inside. And that's the problem. It's the invisible stuff that goes on in your body that people probably don't or probably underestimate.
0: Absolutely. I know um, one, one of the most challenging groups that I used to run, the reason it was difficult, was was the verbal um, comments. So, you know, I sat running a group with somebody who used to refer to me as a black widow spider, and the contempt and hatred would just ooze out of him for 50 minutes of this group that went on kind of like week in, week out. And at one point, I was even going home and having nightmares about him. He was obviously getting under my skin, even though we would got no history of assaulting women um you know all this serious violence was it was against men but there's something about the there's a quite a corrosive effect of those things and I, I think david it's fair to say isn't it that part of why we started this podcast was about the fact that we can see that impact that being subjected to negative comments, um, negative energy, negative behaviours, week in, week out, year on year, you can see that that takes its toll on staff that work within the criminal justice system that often they can end up quite cynical and quite jaded, seem to lose the ability to look on the more optimistic, more positive side of life. And it actually takes quite hard work, I think, if you're working in the criminal justice system to maintain your own wholesomeness. And your ability to to view the world from a more positive place.
2: I completely agree. I think I think police officers struggle with empathy. Now they don't struggle with empathy because of who they are as a person. They struggle with empathy of what they've been through. The you know especially if you look at older officers being in the job twenty odd years. In my experience, anyway, so many of them had that contempt of people and the job because. They've been dearly abused for so many years. Of course, that's going to have an impact on you. Of course, it does. It, it changes how you view the world. And I always say, if you if, if anybody has or knows an optimistic police officer, please get in get in touch because it's such a difficult thing to actually have in your life when you're a police officer. Having that optimism of life's good. How is life good? You're seeing tragedy after tragedy. You're seeing the. Unfortunate negative side of human behavior. And seeing that on a daily basis, it does get to you. And we talk about words, you know, nasty words. You know, at the daily part of being a police officer, but also the threats. I got threatened by so many people saying, I know where you live, and I'm gonna get you when you're on your days off. And seeing your days off, you're thinking, I don't have my backup I don't have a radio I don't have you know the personal PPE protection on me what could happen and you're walking down the street with you know your eyes going to the right your eyes going to the left you're looking behind you you're paranoid especially you know, I think you're paranoid all the time anyway but never mind when you get those personal threats from somebody who says I know where you live and I'm gonna come get you and you just think oh no what is this and that trauma obviously brings it into the personal life and especially in the police force and most emergency services, there's no such thing as work-life balance is there because what you're experiencing in your professional life, of course that will impact you in your personal life. And a perfect example is, well, I I'd attend a call where I've cut down someone who um, hung themselves in their garage, I've cut them down, put them over my shoulders and put them on the ground spoke to his wife and his 14-year-old son about what had happened and we had to seize the letters and everything like that. Within half an hour, an hour, I was back home doing the dishes, back home doing, you know, making dinner. Oh, where's the work-life balance in that? There, you know, that is horrific. How can I, you know, people say compartmentalize and it'd be interesting to see your views on that. But I think it's a quite dangerous to compartmentalize when you're in the police or emergency service because so many things, I think you need to face them head on. And that's the thing we need to do more of. Face them, heal from them, and then your personal life is less impacted because you're healing from them rather than just being like, that's my first, my professional life. That all stays in there. And this is my personal life. I think that's quite dangerous in the long run anyway.
0: I think hopefully we'll come to that a little bit later in the interview, Rob. But I just wanted to clarify just before um, we move on. Uh, it was we interviewed um, Sarah Jane Lenny previously, who was formerly uh, in the police herself, and I think she said that as a police officer, you're never off duty; that you're expected to respond no matter what. So it's not it's not so easy to compartmentalize, even is it, if you're if you're having to be vigilant to what's going on in in the environment when you're out of work.
1: it's terribly interesting what you're saying there, Robert. So it reminds me that just this last weekend, I spent the weekend with a couple of friends who I worked in a night shelter. We worked in a night shelter together. This is over 40 years ago. And uh, so we were going through the old events and we'd all had experiences of being punched and kicked on the ground and that sort of thing. But the main things that we remember was the threat offered by a particular individuals and we could all remember those people we could remember their names we could remember what they looked like it was that power of that threat which stayed stayed with us as did many other things as well So, i mean we've all ma- managed to cope with that and survive but these are challenging unless you have a very supportive environment where you can talk about these things and gain you know from the experience of others I think it's enormously difficult. People go away and they kind of uh, so come up and become rather, well, as Naomi said, can become rather cynical and bitter.
2: Yeah, definitely. And it's something you can't train for. You can't train to how you're going to react to verbal, physical abuse.
1: No. Can I just clarify something as well, Rob? So are you from Northern Ireland but applied for a job in Scotland?
2: Yeah, so I'm originally from Belfast and I moved to Dundee in Scotland for university. So I studied history at the University of Dundee and then the opportunity of Police Scotland came up. So they opened up their recruitment and I thought, well, I'm here. May as well go for it.
1: Right. So you you didn't get caught up in the kind of uh, difficulties uh, of Northern Ireland, the religious uh, divide in Northern Ireland, although I imagine it exists to some extent in uh, in Dundee and elsewhere in Scotland.
2: Yeah, I, thankfully, you know, obviously it was a lot di- more diluted in Scotland compared to Northern Ireland and, you know, growing up I had friends who parents were police officers and they got shot while they were just walking on the beach and even when I was Younger, you always heard these stories of the danger to police officers and the threat to their life. And with my uncles and all in the police too, you'd hear all the stories. And whenever I returned back to Belfast from Dundee, I'd have to alert Special Branch because of the threat that posed to me, even going back to my home in Belfast, that they needed to make sure everything was okay. I couldn't even tell anybody in Belfast, you know, whether it's on the plane or at a cafe, whatever it may be. I couldn't say, oh, by the way, I'm a police officer because unfortunately we are still so targeted back then. And, you know, I'd say to my parents, I know you're proud of me and Paul being in the police, but stop telling everybody because <laughs> you do <laughs> not know who you is going to get that information. And, you know, whenever I was back, you look under your car for car bombs and stuff just in case, because that's the kind of stuff that you'd have to do in Northern Ireland.
1: pretty powerful just for a bit of balance what were the good things about the job (laughs) you know
2: I, i look back and it's easy to look back and just the negative things they're the ones that stick to your mind initially but you know there are so many good things and the first thing i would say is the camaraderie that exists now I actually will go on and say that there's a negative to that camaraderie. But firstly, the positive to that camaraderie is, you know, the friendships and the people you meet, they become your family. At the end of the day, you're spending more time with them than your family in most occasions, especially doing shift work when you're doing night shifts and stuff. But the negative thing about that camaraderie and what I thought about the last few days is that it was camaraderie through trauma rather than camaraderie through friendship and the nice things, we were friends and stuff, but, you know, we connected through the trauma that we were all witnessing on a daily basis. And it's quite heartbreaking when you think of it like that, where the positive is the camaraderie, but there's camaraderie through trauma. And I'm sure the emergency services in general will be the same, where you're experiencing all the bad stuff together. And when you experience these bad things together, it brings you tighter And yes, I look back fondly of those memories. And, you know, people are there to support one another when you're going through a bad call or whatever it may be. But unfortunately, it was still, you know, the trauma existed. We were all friends and united through our one purpose of what we were doing in the police, helping others. And that trauma was the backdrop always, which is such a shame and quite heartbreaking when you think about it.
1: Yeah. And what was the worst part of the job? Was it the kind of traumatic events that we've just been talking about? Or or were there other things as well?
2: I think so. Like, you know, night shifts and stuff, they didn't bother me. I I just came from university to the job, so I was used to night shifts. And, yeah, the the shift work didn't really bother me that much, if I'm honest with you. Um, But I would say the main thing would be the trauma, because not only was it horrific experiencing trauma on a daily basis, but... You know, for me, I'm a very analytical, reflective person. And I've always had been in my life. And before the police, that's who I was as a person. But then during the police, it changed me as a person. I started being less reflective because when I was reflecting on certain things, I was so afraid of living my life because I was so afraid of dying. I was seeing death on a regular basis that when I was reflecting at night, when it was just my head hitting the pillow, I was thinking... Oh, life really is short. And that might make you think, well, that should spur you on to do things. But for me, it, it did the opposite, where I was like, I don't know when my life's going to end. I could, this could be it. And I couldn't understand that I could speak to somebody. And this is one of the occasions where I spoke to a young male in the morning. And seven hours later, I was at his death as he had crashed his car. And I was looking at him, I was like, I just spoke to you a few hours ago. How does life work like that? And he speak to his wife, they just got, they just had a child about two months before. And she just said, but he's just left me. How is this just happened? He's just left the house. I'm like, yeah, but unfortunately it's it's been so quick. And that kind of thing stuck in my head, a trauma, not just experiencing the trauma, but reflecting on it stuck in my head. So I tried to not reflect as much, but see when you don't reflect as much, you're then not healing. From anything because you need to reflect to heal therefore I was becoming really hardened to emotions and for me I was always somebody before the police I wore my emotions on my sleeve my, my family would call me the emotional one in the family because you know I, you know how I, I felt for things and all of a sudden in the police it changed me it changed me as a person and I think I found that the most difficult that changing and seeing myself change and Seeing myself changed to a person I didn't like, you know the negatives, the bitterness, the pessimism—that wasn't me.
1: And I've struggled with that. If I'm honest with you, how did you come to terms with that? Then,
2: I, to be honest with you, I don't. For the, for the five years, I don't think I ever did come to terms with it because I held it all in, and as I held it in, my mental health deteriorated and deteriorated. I didn't share how I felt with colleagues because I feared that they would view me differently. They, they'd think, oh, Rob's struggling with his mental health. Oh, what's he on? Because, and I say that because we we would go to, you know, mental health calls and back that time, in that time, I'm not sure it would completely change now, but back in those days, you would attend, I would say 90% mental health calls. The other 10% would be crime. And those 90% of those mental health calls, not all of them, but so many times, my colleagues would be like, oh, that was a lot of rubbish, wasn't it? And internally, I'm thinking, is this how you feel mental health? Is this how you feel? or is this just your pessimism of the job, or are you feeling mental health like that? So it made me think, I can't then share, I can't open up to these people, just in case I'm then judged, and they think, oh, He's off because of mental health, which he needs to get grip. And I find that very difficult.
1: So you felt you were a bit different, really? I did.
2: You know, I, I felt like I was the odd one out. And I, you know, there were so many good people that exist in the place, but I did feel like I was the odd one out where I just felt like I was, these things, these traumatic events were hurting me inside. My mental health was suffering so much more. And I I just, I think I was a a reflective person that knew it and understood it. And I know that maybe some people in the police weren't as reflective, so maybe just ignored it. Or maybe not necessarily weren't as reflective, but they chose to ignore it more. And I I said, I, I struggled with my mental health, right? And it did come to the point where in July 2018, I felt so stuck in my life I felt so trapped in a job that I really I didn't like I didn't like the job but also the job had such an impact on me mentally but anytime I would speak to people about the prospect of leaving I'd always get that same response of what else are you going to do what else is there to do I'm like tons but internally I had this idea of being in police that's you for 30 years that's your career 30-35 years I can retire when I'm 55 or whatever it may have been and I ran with that and it, it made me struggle even more because I ran with that because then I felt trapped because I thought, is this my life for 20, 30 years? I'm so unhappy and I can't open up to anybody because I felt shame. I felt shame of who I was as a person in terms of the pessimism and stuff, but also shame of just in case someone judged me and then thought, let's not, you know, let's view him differently now. And it came to the point in July 2018 when I just thought, that's it, I'm done. I'm done with life. And I wanted to take my own life and I made the plans to take my own life. Now, my colleagues still don't know that I I planned to take my life. And I was, thankfully I was saved on that day when I was going to take my own life by my dog because I looked down and he looked up at me and he gave me a big lick. And it was that one little moment that saved my life because I thought right that moment someone there he loved me for me. He just didn't judge. There's no, there's just love. He's just pure and natural love from him. And I just thought, I, I need to stay because of him. But I was in the police for a couple of years after that. I still didn't speak about my mental health, even though I hit that rock bottom. I still didn't share about how I felt, why I hit rock bottom and actually wanted to end my life. But then I was talking to people, from on top of bridges talking to people on window ledges making sure they weren't going to end their life and almost felt like a fraud sometimes if i'm honest because i thought to myself how can i tell them don't worry it'll get better this is just a you know phase whatever it may be but internally i'm thinking i wish i was on that bridge i wish that was me and you know i get emotional even now thinking about it but it was it was a really difficult time in my life to having Built up all that internally and never sharing how I felt, but
0: really sorry to hear that you had you know that kind of experience where you reach what, but through work as well by the sound of it, not through kind of like crises in the rest of your life, but. You know, the fact you'd have a loving start to life and it sounds like you know, things were were in a good place at the start of adulthood for you. And really hard to hear that things were so bad at um, that moment that you, that you felt like that. Um, but also could hear the kind of like hopelessness, not just in you, but but in how you talk about your colleagues. And it, uh, that's a hopelessness that I also recognise from hearing from officers counting down literally how many shifts they've got left until they finish working within the prison system and it's like actually if if a job is getting to you that much and yet there's that sense of perhaps people being ground down to such a point that they don't believe they've got anything more to offer or that they can get anything more out of life than they actually are already getting out of of life because who sticks you know with a you know, people advising you to stick with it for another 20, 25 years or what, what have you? When there is so much more to life than than that. But Rob, well, I, I heard you you say that this is how bad it was, and yet you carried on being. Oh, and sorry, the other thing I wanted to pick up on as well was the mental health angle, and the I I was aware that. Police end up dealing with a lot of mental health. 90% sounds such a big part of the work. Um, we saw recently, was it the Met where they said they weren't going to respond to mental health call-outs? And there was a bit of an uproar about it. And yet it isn't the police's job to deal with mental health. And um, I imagine there isn't a huge amount of training um on mental health beyond very basics, unless you're able to tell <laughs> tell us otherwise.
2: You no, know, if I'm honest, that you know, the fact that I can't remember the significant mental health training we got speaks volumes I think you know I think it was a little a couple of little e-learning modules you know you just write on in your own time make sure you complete these but you know what P- police and I'm, I'm sure emergency services and people in business in general when you're so busy and you get told this module needs to be completed by this date are you really paying attention to it is not the best training that you could get it's not because it, you're reading and you need to Make sure you answer the questions, right? But you just think, right, hopefully I've got them right. Okay, perfect. Are you actually taking it all in? Are you actually learning, this is how I'm going to deal with people? You know, we'd have, every now and again, we'd have, once a year it was, you know, our um, officer safety training recertification, where you practice putting handcuffs on people. And every now and again, they would do a wee, um, like, what do you call it? uh scenario where they'd act out and you know someone's maybe experiencing mental health difficulties so you know don't put the cuffs on them or whatever it may have been that they were so fake they were so far removed and it was one it was a five minute thing in a one hour session is that enough for mental health training
0: Well, we also know that even in psychiatric hospitals with staff who are psychiatric nurses Um, psychologists psychiatrists that actually people who are suicidal are really difficult for they often don't get an empathic response from staff groups because there's something about their presentation that is really I think very challenging for people to work with so to then expect the police to do this job on a regular basis without having that kind of training it's not surprising It took a toll. But I was, you know, conscious of the fact that you said you reached this low point and then you carried on working in the police for another two years after that. And so I wondered if you feel able to share what, you know, what was the final straw? Why did you end up leaving?
2: Yeah, it's, you know, for a lot of people that would be seen as the turning point when I hit that rock bottom. But for me, I I just kept going. I kept wearing that mask when I went to work. I was happy, smiley. I'd make everybody else laugh in the muster room. And everyone thought, you know, nobody would have thought Rob suffering. I was the laughy, jokey one that tried to bring a little bit of positivity. Now, I, I like to rant too every night and again, but, you know, I tried to bring a wee bit of positivity. But it came to the point where on my last shift, or what would be my last shift, I witnessed a young male take his own life in the morning. And I was there for him, watching on, and I couldn't get to him. The way he'd where the way he was positioned, I couldn't get closer to him. And I saw the blood spurting out of his mouth and his eyes wide open, staring at me. And I couldn't help. And he just passed away right in front of me. Now that's a very difficult thing for anybody to experience in their lives. But five hours later, my colleague then had a heart attack on shift and died. And I remember the paramedics giving him CPR. And you'd get him I'm watching, overlooking it, being like, I can't help. I can't save him, just like I couldn't help or save the young uh, guy earlier. My colleague had 29 years service, one year left until retirement. He was an older cop who could have retired in 30 years. And he talked to me about his plans for the future, his plans with his wife, the traveling they were going to do, whatever it may be. And what I realized was he was putting it happiness and living his life into that pension into retirement i was like wait a minute i'm five years into my job i'm now 27 am i willing to put off living my life for 30 years to go and get my retirement that may never be guaranteed you know people are quick to say it's great to get a pension um 30 years so i only have to do 30 years and i can retire young who says you're going to retire? Who says your body's going to be the same physical state? Never mind. Are you going to survive until then? And I just thought to myself at that point, I was like, I can't, What am I doing? What am I doing with my life?" And my, I was actually my mental health he had again deteriorated at that point, where it manifested itself in a physical injury in my knee, where I tore my ACL in my knee. Now, I didn't tear my ACL because of a football accident or squash or whatever it was. My mind tore it right then. And I was off for the next five months of work, barely able to walk. And it was those five months off, being removed from the trauma, the daily trauma, when I realized that that timeline of those five years looked really different to how I probably viewed it before then. And it was actually traumatic event after traumatic event after traumatic event, what we're talking about now. I didn't realize that when I was in the place because you don't realize trauma and all the the trauma you experience because you're going from trauma to trauma to trauma. And for me, when I was away from it for those five months initially, all of a sudden all this trauma came back to me and I realized, Rob, not only have you got trauma from all these things that you may not have thought you had, But it's all unhealed because how can you heal from trauma when you just go again, you go again. And that last day is a perfect example. How can I have um, healed from that morning trauma and then all of a sudden witnessing another trauma that it almost takes over it. And even in my healing journey, I focused on that second trauma with my colleague. And it's only recently when I realized, Rob, what about that first time you witnessed on that day, too? That was just as difficult because that young male reminded me of me. Because I thought I was in that position where I wanted to take my life. I was around his age. And I thought life was not worth living. And I saw myself in him and I saw myself in my colleague, but the future me. So I saw the past me and the future me. I was like Scrooge in a Christmas carol. Almost, I was I was getting shown these two sides. And that was the biggest awakening for me, not only for what I wanted in my life, but also initially how the police dealt with it. Because, you know, the paramedics came out of the, the ambulance and they said, he's not made it. We're all distraught, as you can imagine, keeping our emotions in check. And then my sergeant comes to me and says, Rob, can you take some statements? And looking at all my... My colleagues, my my best friend, younger than me, he was there, and I just like I couldn't let him try to do these statements. So I was like, "Sorry, I'll take them all," and I took statement after statement after statement, relived that moment again and again. I didn't need to relive that moment. I'm you know I relived that moment in my head anyway. I was, was what I've witnessed, and I just thought they don't care. You are a number, and. I realized now, but also when I was off, that my shoulder number was Delta 1509. And that's who I was to the police. I was Delta 1509. I wasn't Rob. I wasn't Rob Hosking. The guy with feelings. The human. I was the number. Almost like a robot. I felt at that point, that's how they viewed me. And I remember raising my concerns for the inspector after, and I said, I've, I'm a mental health sufferer. He looked up and he said, you'll need to get that sorted. And then turned around and kept typing on his computer. And I was like, brilliant, thanks so much. I just learned in that moment, they were never going to treat me as Rob, And if I don't put myself first, they certainly weren't going to. It's a really um, powerful
0: story rob and you know awful, such an awful awful experience um not just for the what you'd actually experienced but the way that that was also dealt with by the police and i, I suppose that you know that that does make me think you know do you do you think the police attracts people who are uncaring and callous or is is it the culture of the you know what you're having to deal with that that produces this kind of uncaring you're just a number attitude um
2: I I think I think the culture I I honestly do think the culture now I do think there is two sides to where people will join the police who now now not puns them but I'm just saying there will be a section of people who join the police for that power element they've maybe been bullied growing up They've now seen this chance of, oh, I've got a little bit of power in my life for the first time, and psychologically, that probably changes them as a person, or maybe enhances the person they already were. Does it make people callous? I think callous is quite an extreme word to what I would describe how it makes people. Do I think it makes people bitter, pessimistic, negative? One hundred percent. Do I think it changes people? Yes. I think it makes people callous? I think that makes it in a way where they're almost evil and they're capable of doing horrific things. Now, we've seen in the police people doing bad things, yes. But my argument with that would be that was obviously something in them. Even if it was something little, that was something that was in them before they joined the police. Maybe the police have enhanced something, maybe, yes. But can the police make someone like that I don't think they can make them the callous nature of some of the horrific crimes but do they make people not very empathetic do they make people not really caring about other people 100 100 the culture exists which i believe is such a poor culture that you don't you, you just lose your emotions you lose what it actually means to be human and treat other people like humans you definitely lose that
0: Thank you, and I appreciate you kind of like differentiating, you know, picking up on my use of the word callous and and clarifying what you were saying there. That's really really helpful. What you were so talking, I, sorry.
1: Yeah, I just want to say, uh, Rob, I I work with many policemen and police women who felt trapped in the service in in a similar way to how you've been describing it, and funny enough, this. Pension, which appears to be so attractive, was often a part of it. So, people would get excellent, excellent officers would get to the age of 50 and just couldn't face it anymore. And it was tragic talking with them. And they may have coped with a desk job, but suddenly they were being asked to go back on the beat again. And they couldn't do it and so they often ended up just going off sick for a while but they hated doing that because they were diligent uh, yeah, people so is there something about the police force which has a kind of rigidity yeah to it in that that way
2: i think so i think so many people like i've spoke to friends in the police and i'm like just leave and they're like oh but i've put so much into the pension you think pension your life's worth you know your life's living now you know let's create a happy life for you in the present moment pension you're looking at something that is so far down the line that it's just such a. I just think it's an excuse and it is almost like um almost like that Stockholm syndrome if I, I think I've got that right it's you almost feel trapped by your abuser but you have that relationship where you're like, oh, no, but I'm loyal to them. I'll I'll cancel my days off because they need me. I'll not leave them because they need me. Uh, and it's that kind of, I think, am I, am I right? Is it Stockholm yes, Syndrome? Yes. that? Yeah, yeah. And it's funny, you probably f- do feel like that. You feel like you're trapped in that abusive relationship. And it is an abusive relationship. When you look at it, they cancel your days off when they want to. And guess what? You don't have a say. If you have annual leave and then a court case especially a high-risk court case comes up and you put your cta in to try to get excused if they don't want you excused you cancel your holiday It they've got so much control so much rigidity in it and you know two of my core values are freedom and spontaneity and that was before i joined the police so you can imagine police force wasn't, was not for me freedom and spontaneity does not go with being a police officer because they control your life and they do it's such a such an awful thing for an organization to be able to have that much control and people say but you know that when you sign up trust me trust me you do not know the extent of it when you sign up you can never understand because when you get your annual leave that you've been looking forward to for months get cancelled because they tell you it's cancelled when your days off get cancelled how can you you know oh I knew that anyway you don't see family's birthdays um, Christmas whatever it may be you're you're not experiencing these things that everyone else is experiencing, and it is such a such a horrible relationship so it is it's it's yeah it's not nice
0: Thank you, Rob. Um, In terms of, th- uh, you know, if we just go back to this issue about callousness there, I wondered, were you shocked when you heard the stories about the, disc- in quotes, discriminatory, derogatory and pornographic messages that have been shared amongst members of the police?
2: I'm not shocked, but it, it, it comes down to the culture. Am I shocked as them as individuals? I would probably be shocked at some individuals, maybe, if I knew them, let's say, because I don't think necessarily it's the individual's fault when they get caught up in these kind of things, because the police culture that exists, it does harden your emotions. You know, there's a place for dark humor in the emergency services in general. I I firmly believe there's a place for it, but there's a place initially to get you by when you need to be professional, maybe when you're just in, you're going to something else next, and you need to think, need it, need that little bit of light humor to get through. But whenever you only have that dark humor, when you then turn to alcohol, drugs, whatever it may be, that is then the problem because how are you healing from the trauma? And when people are like that, I believe they're the ones who then get involved in these. Inappropriate, discriminatory messages, because, quite frankly, they are discriminatory to other people. I've experienced it in my own life as a, as a colleague to these people. Where when it suited them, we'd all laugh together. But if I made a wee banter about one of them, some of them did not like that in terms of the grip, because they saw me as I don't know. I don't know what they actually how they saw me. But they always saw that I, they could always. I, I could always be the butt of the joke. And I remember some of them say about, oh, what do you know? You need to get back to your own country. You come over here stealing our jobs. I was like, you'd arrest people for that. And you're saying that to me. And then they all laugh. And I'm like, thanks for that. That's, you know, that camaraderie is no longer there. The only camaraderie when you're in the trauma. And I experienced that in my own life. Never mind the people that they're dealing with, the people that they feel like, they're causing them hassle because oh them again, what are they calling for? You, you get that idea, you get that thinking. So I'm not surprised by it. Um, I'm saddened to hear it, but you know, me as an individual, did I have that dark humor? Of course I did. Did I say things to colleagues that were not me as an individual, but maybe the job? Of course I did. I never went that next level, but I, of course, you know, you have the banter. And there was so many times in my life where that banter probably did was my only coping mechanism. The banter, the banter, the banter, that was it. But I learned to heal from other things. But you know, my colleague, uh, that I was a colleague with for a few years, you know, he, we'd finished a night shift and it was, it was a brutal night shift. And at 7 a.m. I'm I'm having a cup of tea. I'm like, oh, just chill night before we go to sleep. And he's got some beers and I'm like are you having a beer at 7am and that that was his coping mechanism but for me no I was never like that I was always so analytical and reflective most of the time anyway so yeah I'm I'm not surprised it's it's sad saddens me but I'm not surprised
0: yeah I was just thinking about how hard it is to speak up about wrongdoing and challenge wrongdoing and not get caught up with it and you know it's really hard to do that I think in a job where you're not really really dependent on each other all the time but actually I guess in the police like the military there is that sense of you need to be there for one another in case you are all called to a a scene that requires you all to have each other's backs and that must I guess add to that pressure not to challenge or rock the boat if somebody's saying something that actually makes you want to pull away but it might be quite hard to directly challenge that. Wayne Cousins obviously represented a very extreme case um, in terms of police, corrupt police and uh, callousness in the police. Um, But between 2016 and 2020, there were 750 allegations of sexual misconduct um, for officers in the Met, which led to 47 officers getting sacked for sexual misconduct. Do you think people who are sexually predatory gravitate towards the police or does the police culture play a role in that too?
2: I'd probably say that there's it's twofold. That troll element that I was speaking about earlier, if you crave that already as a person, I think the job of a police officer will maybe appeal to you and be like, oh, it's a job. I think also, now, I, n- I don't mean this to sound in a bad way but you know it's not hard to get into the police too so you know what kind of caliber of people is it attracting to it because what's the qualifications to really get into the police for the police scotland anyway it's going down it went down throughout the years you know you need to be fit you need to get 9.2 in the brief test then all of a sudden when i was in it you need to get 5.4 or something like that it went down dramatically so it probably does attract people who may have other ideas now I know it doesn't matter about class because you could be in top class and social status and still commit awful crimes but it, you know it's it's not a hard job to get into these days which is maybe brings into uh, brings people interest in it. but I also think the idea of control respect some of these people probably have never had respect in their lives. they maybe grew up in a family that didn't respect them, didn't show them love they maybe always created that control element. To their lives and the police represents that for for the first time in their lives that they, they could get that control so i do believe that people maybe who are sexually motivated to do these kind of things it might attract them yes do i think the job makes them it i don't think it makes them it fully i think if we had like a 100 of people i think it would maybe make one percent of those people at 99 percent, would already have those kind of beliefs or wants and desires before that. but I think the culture does bring with it, as I said before. It, it leads to people changing and so many of them will can change up to a certain level. But then that callous level, I think you have to have that element of something in you before joining the police that will just tip that over the edge. The police culture needs to change. the police culture is pure. The facts are there where so many police are caught up with it. Is there is it right that, oh, it's just coincidence that so many of them are involved in it? I don't I don't think so because I also do think police culture does have that well, it definitely did. I can't really comment right now, but it definitely had that macho culture side to it. Women were probably viewed differently back. When, like years and years ago, never mind when I was in the police, but now it is probably changing for the better. So I think men, probably there are probably some examples where they do change. And unfortunately, those figures you gave, I would probably say they're the 1% that have ended up changing because of the culture. But when we think of how many police officers that exist in the whole of the UK or whatever it may be, I still think 99% of them will go up to a certain level and change to a certain level. But that callous nature, those serious crimes, I think you need to have that element within you already.
0: Thank you. Thanks, Rob. So, I mean, obviously we're talking about the other end of the country in terms of we've seen that especially highlighted the Mets repeated problems with um the the wrongdoing of of its officers, um, but also we've seen stories from other forces, so the Met are not unique in this. And certainly, what you're describing sounds like a culture that doesn't promote well-being is unlikely to bring out the best in in people, and is if, if anything likely to um make people more susceptible to wrongdoing because of the challenges of the work. So, you know, do you think there's any faith in the oft-repeated phrase? About oh, we're going to root out bad apples, as we heard Cressida Dick say, and I think Mark Rowley's also spoken about that. Do you do you have any faith in that approach, or do you think the barrel's rotten? Should we be doing something else to to change the culture?
2: I think it's we, we can remove bad apples from the barrel all we want, and the the rottenness will unfortunately still exist in that barrel until we actually start helping that barrel get back to the former glory of the, the barrel. So I think one thing we need to understand is it takes time. You can take the bad apples out, and once you have no bad apples, brilliant. But unfortunately, that barrel is still rotten until it gets cured. And that does take time. It, w- it will take time. So there is an element of patience, but, Patience only matters when no new bad apples are getting placed in it. Patience only will help the solution when you're not also promoting bad culture. You're you're you have to, you know, challenge it. Do you you said there, but do people challenge it enough because of you know the you all have each other's back? Do you challenge it enough? I don't think you can. I don't think you can. I hope that. Nowadays, people are more susceptible to challenge, but it comes from top down. You know, Police Scotland was an example, and I can't remember the the old, uh, the one just before, or is it now? No, the one before. You know, he became the top of Police Scotland. But there's also allegations into him about some wrongdoing when he was at the police college. So you're promoting somebody who's got these allegations I can't remember. I think it was younger officers, a younger woman that he was maybe flirting with or doing something inappropriate with. And now he's head of that organisation. What what kind of culture? It's top down, and you can bring on all these bad apples that you want, but you know we need to change culture top down here. You promote, you promoting the right people? Are you making the right changes? That is the thing we need to look at more. For
1: thank you. You saying that uh, reminds me, uh, Rob, that just recently we were talking to an American journalist who's been writing about abusive practices in Californian prisons and how uh, a major perpetrator, the head of a particular woman's prison, was uh, replaced by somebody who had current allegations uh, uh, about them. So those kinds of practices seem to be very, very current wherever you are, extraordinary. So what do you think Mark Rowley? Mark Rowley, of course, is the commissioner of the Metropolitan Police. What steps should he be taking if he really wanted to clean up the force?
2: I think all we need to focus on is trauma and how we respond to traumatic events. Now, No matter what, police officers, prison officers, whatever it may be, whoever you may be, when you're in that job, you're going to experience trauma. We can't shelter you from the trauma. But what we can do is put in ways to heal you from the trauma, to make sure that you're okay before you go again. And, you know, whenever I'd witness a traumatic event, we'd get an email from Trim two days later And the email would just say, if you need counselling, you know, we're here for you. And then you'd go to your colleague, like, did you get that email? And they'd say, oh, yeah, just deleted it. And you're like, right, perfect, I'll delete that too then. First of all, the culture is bad there where people just think, well, just, just delete it. But secondly, it goes back to being treated like a number. All I'm good for is an email. And for me, that's quite insensitive. For me, that's not like you care. An email saying, by the way, if you need this, we're here for you. I think it needs to be mandatory. I think counselling needs to be mandatory after every traumatic event, whether it's a 10-minute chat, a 30-minute chat, whatever it may be, but it needs to be mandatory. And these officers who've been there 30 years might think, oh, that's rubbish. Well, I'm sorry, but it needs to be mandatory. And I think that's one of the main things we need to do to heal from the trauma.
0: I think that's such a good observation. I know when I worked in a high secure prison, we made reflective practice mandatory for prison officers and that because that get takes away from you don't have to look like you're vulnerable to go for to go and have that time. And actually some people, some people probably won't turn up for it, but you know that actually just the just getting into the habit of going and having those conversations makes it easier. And you're not having to look weak, you're not being flagged up or singled out because you've been offered something, um, you know, making it mandatory, actually, I think goes a really long way to making it possible to to engage with something that's that's there's a bit of a stigma about.
2: Yeah, I completely agree with that word habit. We need to get into that habit because, you know, even if I had said yes to a counselling thing, if I had went somewhere or someone came into the office, people were like, oh, who's this? What's happening? And then I go into the room. The gossip in the police... The Gossip Mill is horrific, and in so many of these kind of organisations, you can just imagine what gossip's going around, like, oh, he's been taken into an office, or whatever it may be, you can't hide it. So what we need to do is make it mandatory for everybody to have that kind of meeting, because we need to create habits, but let's start creating healthy habits, rather than the, I think, the negative habits that exist in the police force, because negative habits will breed, what, more negativity bad behaviour, poor behaviour, healthier habits will create happier staff and more positive behaviour, a, a force that people can actually respect rather than speaking to people like they're something on your shoe. And I always said that about myself. I, also was like, I always treat people the way I want to be treated. I've been brought up with that mantra and I will always do that whether I'm in the police or whatever. And so many occasions I would be dealing with somebody and they'd say to me, oh, I'm glad it's you. You're the nice one. Now, I wasn't nice because, oh, they got away with everything with me. I was nice because I spoke to them like humans, like who they really are. They're Of course, they're humans. But yes, they do bad things, but we still need to have a human element to it. And the amount of times when somebody did get arrested for me, half the time they, they would know they'd done wrong. And it almost looked quite... Like they've they've disappointed me or something like that. And I'm oh, so sorry about this. And I'm like it's fine, you know. Like these things happen, but I still speak to them in a human. I don't judge them. I don't treat them like dirt. And so positive habits go a long way. So mandatory training. I'm sorry, mandatory uh, things for trauma. I think so important. But also we need to improve the training. We're talking about like I don't know the full stats now about mental health calls, but I have no doubt that it will always come back to the police in some form or another. It will, of course it will. If someone's in their crisis and an ambulance can come, who's going to go? The, the police are going to go. So we need to have the right training about mental health. How can we actually not only help these people, but then help yourself? And it's twofold. How can we put in these self-care practices, practices for you? Never mind how you can speak to people, to help them in their times of crisis, and for me, you know, the talks I give now, I always say, I was protecting the public, but I wasn't protecting myself. And by not protecting myself, how can I give one hundred percent to my job? Then, how can I give one hundred percent to my relationships, my friends, whatever it may be? But we need to then be able to give ourselves hundred percent to our well-being. So more of these self-care practices need to be done, and then we can actually protect the public the way we should be able to, the positive side of protecting the public, rather than this this bad, negative press. Now, will this negative press exist? Always. Of course it will. You're always going to have one person that does wrong, of course you will. But the numbers don't lie, and the numbers are getting increasingly concerning where you're getting to the higher stage where it shows the culture is so poor and it's influencing so many people rather than just one individual who just cannot be tamed, so to speak.
1: Um, so that's i think that's what we need to do so i think you're so right uh, rob but i also think that the kind of good practices that you're alluding to are not that difficult to find they just require thoughtfulness planning and some initiative to ensure that they're uh, implemented I, I was at a visiting a hospital on earlier this week and was told about an incident where a particular nurse had found a patient who had seriously harmed themselves and she saved her from further harm. And the, the the patient had to go off to hospital, but they deliberately sent some different colleagues with her to hospital. So that the person who had found the initial situation and been upset and traumatized by it was able to spend some time recovering. And I was impressed by the thoughtfulness. Simple that was that had gone into that simple uh, operation
2: I completely agree and you know I think a lot of police forces or businesses in general will say we don't have the budget but you just you just alluded to something there where well budget's needed for that there's no budget needed and I don't believe that necessarily that you know the police force needs more budget they need to spend the budget you've got in the correct way before more budget like for example with police scotland towards the end of my career they put on this tracker thing into all the police vehicles and it cost them hundreds and hundreds of thousands of pounds to do it every vehicle got this installed and to this day it it went down in the water it never got anywhere they also wanted to change their systems they put so much money into it and then it, it failed too Budget. We didn't. We didn't. Shouldn't change budget. Change how we're spending the budget
1: first.
0: Yeah, Yeah, it's this thing of throwing money at gadgets, isn't it? As if the gadgets are going to solve things. I mean, (laughs) I think there is a cost when it comes to this sort of thing, just in terms of time, staff time. But the reality is, the you know, the alternative is that you end up having to spend more on training because you have to train more officers up because people don't stay within the service, or you're having to provide cover for sick days because people aren't well enough to be at work. And we that's know right. it's not just mental health, but if you're mental health struggling, that that's like like you did, you ended up, yeah. you know, with a, a physical injury, uh, which gave yeah. you the permission to be off, off work. But, you know, back pains, all those sorts of problems, even, you know, heart, heart issues, all these sorts of things arise when people are not happy and don't feel safe. So... There there might be a cost, but unfortunately we don't often spend enough time totting up how much it's going to cost if you don't do these things.
1: Rob, this has been such an engaging conversation that we've gone on a bit and taken a lot of your time, but I think we would like to know what you've been doing since you've left the police.
2: Yeah, so now I give motivational talks. So I give motivational talks to events about how we can increase happiness in our lives. But I also give motivational talks to businesses, not only to create happier staff and why we should create happier staff, but also how we can create happier staff, what the staff can do for themselves to create happier lives, both in a professional sense, but also in a personal sense. And I actually just spoke to more than 100 police officers last week at a welfare a Wellfest um, event talking about what they can do for themselves, but also the force in general, what the staff could do and my managers can do. And it's been so well received and hearing that feedback from police officers where, you know, I never thought I'd have anything else to do with the police and having that feedback, I'm like, oh, I'm actually helping the people who, some of them probably are, were in my shoes and felt how I felt. So it's so rewarding. And on top of that, I'm also the co-founder of Rise Happiness, which is a wellbeing magazine which has people's stories in it from the public eye, but also everyday people sharing their vulnerable stories and expert tips and well-being uh, advice just so that, yet again, people can see the vulnerability that people are going through in their lives, but also can get some takeaways, the tips from the experts of what they can then do to help in their own lives.
1: Thanks very much.
0: And yeah, just to say, we've got your co-founder also coming on the yeah. podcast. I'm not sure if it's next week or the or the weekend. Shortly, anyway, um, yeah. because her research be is also really relevant for for our podcast in terms of thinking about the well-being of prison officers. So, so yeah. finally, Rob, what advice would you give to our listeners about how to look after their emotional well-being?
2: I think. What we need to do is we need to be more comfortable with speaking about how we feel. We need to do that by not only creating safe spaces for your friends and family, but also just feeling safe enough to open up. Because in my own experience, even and I have opened up in these events and anything like that. The might of people have then shared their story after and were like, oh, I felt this, I thought I was the only one. We need to be feel like we're in a safe space to share our story create safe spaces so people are also able to be vulnerable and you know I'm so I believe that we need to promote open communication so much because it is the only way to get it all out and it's so important you can't have all these feelings and these negative feelings of like getting it out because then that's how you can get better so open communication is a big one and just you know surround yourself with the right people we are the average of the five people we spend the most time with. So look at your people. As I said, I've experienced it in the police. When I was surrounded by negative people, I became a negative person. So look at people you're surrounding yourself with. If you have to make changes, be brave and change. Because look at who you want to become and be. And that will all look after your emotional, uh, your, yeah your emotional, mental health and everything, your physical health. It all comes under the same thing and it increases your happiness. So they would definitely be the two
1: big ones.
0: Brilliant. Thank you very much, Rob. Really appreciate the conversation. A very powerful one. Thank you.
1: Thank thank you. Thanks a lot, Rob. real pleasure talking with you.
2: Thank you.